This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Bernie Sanders jumped into the 2020 Democratic Party presidential race this week, raising a whopping $6 million the first day, making him the most important candidate in the race, and not just because of the money. His 2016 run within the Democratic Party but against its politics has changed the political conversation, brought tens of thousands into the work of politics, elected a new cohort of left Democrats to Congress, and put the party on notice, such that all candidates are now at least proclaiming support for Medicare for All, striking teachers, and a Green New Deal. As Kate Aronoff, our guest, puts it in The Guardian, the types of ideas laughed off in the 2016 primary as magical unicorns are now firmly in the party's mainstream, even as they make its top brass sweat. We ask Kate Aronoff, contributing writer at The Intercept and Jacobin, to unpack that when Jacobin Radio returns in just a moment. I'm Susie Wiseman, and this is Jacobin Radio. Very pleased to have Kate Aronoff with me for the first time. She is a fellow at the Type Media Center, a contributing writer at The Intercept and Jacobin. She also writes for The Guardian in these times, The Nation, all the good places. And she's studying economics at John Jay College in New York and tweets at Kate Aronoff. That's K-A-T-E-A-R-O-N-O-F-F. Her recent articles include on February 19th in The Guardian, we're going to be discussing a lot. It's called It's Bernie's World. The Democratic Party is just living in it. And earlier this month, she wrote in The Intercept, the Green New Deal takes its first congressional baby step as Pelosi mocks the Green Dream or whatever. And in Jacobin, it's time to try fossil fuel executives for crimes against humanity. So you kind of get where we're going to be going in today's interview. And first, welcome, Kate, to Jacobin Radio. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Very good to have you, too. And as I said, we're going to concentrate on, let's call it, overlapping subjects. Bernie Sanders' presidential candidacy for 2020 that was announced on February 19th, and the call for and so-called feasibility of a Green New Deal. And you can look at a large article in Friday's New York Times and what these entail in terms of possibility, in other words, in order to win and put into practice. And we'll talk about what are the political and economic obstacles. So let's start with Bernie's candidacy in the Democratic Party. And I'll just frame it by saying that the Democrats since the 1990s have been geared towards satisfying the needs of Wall Street for the reason that they see themselves dependent on Wall Street money, especially because of the way that elections are financed. How do you see the Democratic Party establishment reacting to the threat of a Bernie victory in other words, could they let it happen? Will they? And we know, of course, all the dirty tricks that were used last time to prevent it. So how does the Dem, and this is really what your article kind of goes through, how the Democratic Party establishment could allow Bernie to be the candidate given that his platform is antithetical to their base, which is Wall Street. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question, in part because I think what constitutes the Democratic Party's base is really changed over the last several years. I mean, particularly since Bernie Sanders ran for president the first time around in 2016, what we've seen is that really the energy of the party and the momentum of the party that had been lacking really for a long time through, you know, the early 2000s, even through the Obama years, 
is really sort of focused on really bald progressive ideas. And so while there is still this sort of massive problem of ultra-conservative donor base that is fairly, you know, bipartisan in some places, depending on the industry, I think, you know, increasingly, and, and many other contenders who are not Bernie Sanders are recognizing this, is that voters are really hungry. I mean, millennial voters especially, who are on the verge of becoming the largest voting bloc in the United States, are really hungry for ideas like a job guarantee, like Medicare for All, like a Green New Deal. And these are things, of course, that Bernie was called crazy for when he ran in 2016. But now we see even, you know, traditionally fairly centrist Democrats like Cory Booker and Kristen Gillibrand coming around and embracing sort of all big ideas because they recognize where the votes are. They recognize, you know, this is how they get people to come out and knock doors for them, how they get people to come and, and canvas for them. I think it's a great thing that Bernie has sparked that change, and it, it'll be a interesting race for him this time around, in part because he's been so effective at really helping to, to change that. I was going to say, because and before we get, you know, further into, let's say, what the Democratic Party establishment, which is, you know, and it's very interesting because, as you say in your article, you say that Bernie's 2016 run, in essence, he wrote the rules by which the Democratic Party is now operating. And on the same day that Bernie Sanders announced, the L.A. Times ran an op-ed by Matt Welch that used that argument against Bernie's 2020 run, in, in other words, saying, look, you won everything. So you're long in the tooth, don't run. You know? And so and on the other hand, we saw in the very first day that after Bernie Sanders declared that he raised, you know, six million dollars. And you've just talked about the millennials, the largest voting bloc, the majority voting bloc, no longer accepting the old Democratic Party lineup. And so it's kind of I want to get a little bit deeper into these issues and we can talk about the tension, you know, that exists between what we used to call the DLC, the conservatives that really know where the money's coming from and the base that they no longer you know, can ignore. It used to be the case, and I'll just say this very quickly, that the Republicans feared their base and the Democrats hated theirs, and they could get away with that, but no longer. And so now we see all of these new candidates coming out adopting Medicare for all and, and you know, paying lip service. And it's very interesting because we're also now just past the LA teachers strike, which was a historic victory, the Oakland strike, and then the very short West Virginia strike that was also a victory, not to mention Denver as well. So there is a strike wave. The strike is back. And Democrats who have been pro-charter and now having to say that they're standing with teachers and public sector unions. So it, it is a new landscape. And yet there's still this tension. Maybe we could talk a little bit more about it. Kate Aronoff. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think there are two things going on, right? I think on the one hand is, you know, what we we're just talking about is that there is this sort of like young crop of voters who know that, you know, the economy isn't working for them. They know that climate change is coming. They know that not having health care is a totally unsustainable thing for the one of the wealthiest countries on earth. And there's this other sort of interesting dynamic, which is that with Donald Trump coming into office, some of the positions that, you know, Democrats have taken historically are now sort of politically toxic for them and, and actually, you know, very, very out of touch with even the sort of like most mainstream configuration of their base. So if you think about something like charter schools, for instance, right, the, the charter push was something that for a long time has been bipartisan. And with Betsy DeVos in, in as Secretary of Education, actively pushing charter schools, I think they 
really can't pretend anymore that that a thoroughly democratic position, you know, either a, a big D democratic position or a small D democratic position. And so there's certain positions for Democrats which have gotten much more uncomfortable with Trump in office. And so they've had to sort of, the, the sort of DLC wing of the party has had to kind of, you know, configure itself around those, those two dynamics and stake out a position that, that's more progressive if they're not, you know, going to just sort of go after Trump alone. It's certainly, you know, I think what some Democrats are very comfortable with is just sort of focusing on getting him out of office. But I think, you know, the smartest people, it seems like in the party, even if they're not, you know, in their heart of hearts, really progressive and certainly not leftist, they're really coming around to the idea that the center of the Democratic Party is not a model that can win. If it ever was, it certainly can't win now. Right. And so let me ask you just another question based on, you know, who supported uh, what the lineup was like in 2016, how you see the change today. But let's go back just to the African-American vote for Bernie. And what we saw in the 2016 election is that Bernie captured the millennial generation and say up to age 40, but over age 40, African-Americans tended to support Hillary and not Bernie. And I wondered if you have any understanding on whether or not, one, it's changed or at Bernie's stance on the issues is winning over some of those who would have voted or did vote for Hillary. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to say without people having actually voted yet, right? Like how much that perception has changed since 2016 and, and, you know, how well Bernie Sanders will fare among older African-American voters. I think it will be tougher for him this time around. And I think, you know, that's something that it seems like certainly with his staffing picks this time around and, you know, what he said so far, I think it's really smart for Bernie to be, you know, just a bit more cognizant of the ways in which his campaign has not always talked effectively about racial justice has not always sort of, you know, held that as, as a key principle. And I think, you know, <laughs> that's not to say like to feed into this sort of Bernie bro narrative, but I think Bernie really does this time around have to differentiate himself from candidates, including candidates of color who are supporting policies that are very similar to the ones that he's supporting. So I think he needs to be able to say, you know, really sort of center racial justice in his campaign in a way that, you know, is not, I think, terribly different from what he was doing in 2016 on, on the sort of policy end, but sort of being just more cognizant of the fact that that is, you know, in 2016 was, was a sort of weak point for his voting base. But, you know, I think part of that is also generational. It's like millennials overwhelmingly voted for Bernie. So I think it's just hard to say exactly like what, who everyone will, will end up voting for in part because the field is just so massive and, yeah, but I think there are things that I'm certainly hopeful that, that Bernie will do that can, you know, make that make that easier and sort of correct for some of the missteps and kind of unforced errors he's gotten into before. Well, and it's also, of course, unfair for me to do such crystal ball gazing. But I wanted to go back just a little bit and to say, let's say, for example, that, you know, the neoliberal order is disintegrating. You just said that the politics that the Democratic Party has espoused is not winnable anymore. And that has just been shown over and over again. And so, and I want to take it, you know, to this other stage where the support worldwide for neoliberal politics has come from above and not below. And even that has had diminishing support. And what we're seeing, not just in the United States, but worldwide, are massive protests, strikes, demonstrations, occupations. And you see that the response has been from this extreme center. And maybe 
we could even say Pelosi would be part of it when she said the Green New Dreamer or something, you know, and, and others have called it worse, but that any real challenge to the political order is deemed just impossible because it's too radical. Or on the other hand, if they don't want to say that, they'll just say it's aspirational. So I wanted to ask how you see the challenge to the existent order today, and what will it take literally short of revolution to affect reforms that address the real issues from inequality to climate catastrophe. And I wanted to frame that within, you know, first I said who the, their base has been, which has been Wall Street and basically the business class, but more the financial business class. And now we're seeing that there's a worldwide protest against that. So giant question, maybe we can just chip away at it a little bit and then move into the Green New Deal, which I know you've thought a lot about and written a lot about. Yeah, I mean, I think the place that I would start is that we really at this, this stage, and I, I think about this, you know, mostly through the lens of climate politics, which is like what I do most of my reporting about. We really don't have any alternative, you know, to, to curb a phrase from Margaret Thatcher to doing some fairly, you know, big and ambitious policies. And I think, you know, I don't know if that reality is sort of seeped in. I think maybe it's starting to, given the amount of people who are coming out and supporting a Green New Deal. But I think, it, you know, it's a really tough fight in part because, you know, the issue for Democrats right now is not just to pass progressive policy. This is not just to pass Medicare for all and all that. It's really to create sort of a new consensus about what constitutes economic and political common sense. So there's this moment sort of after the oil shock, sort of, you know, where the post-war order had been unable to meet the crisis of the day. There was deflation, you know, sort of economic chaos, as, as many people saw it. And Reagan came in and, you know, proposed an alternative that was neoliberalism, as, as we know it now. And so I think, you know, we're at this similar kind of breaking point today where neoliberalism is really not up to the challenges of our day, whether that's sort of gaping levels of inequality or I think most notably and horrifically, the climate crisis. And so, yeah. I was just going to say also exploding homelessness. And this is really a big issue emerging in the Oakland teacher strike that the cost of housing and the amount that people take in in their wages just don't go together. So, all right. So let's, and I, I kind of interrupted you, but I want to go forward before we run out of time into the Green New Deal. And as you can see in the February 22nd New York Times, there's a big article that I think is one of the more serious that you see on it. So it's no longer just, you know, dismissing this idea. And it's thanks to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others who are now putting it forward, not as policy yet, but at least, you know, a commission. And you can discuss this. But the discussion is not, is this a green new dream or whether it can be done, but that, you know, we've now had notice that we've got about 11 years left. And the way that I saw it, that I took it to be argued today in the New York Times is to ask serious climate scientists and economists whether it can that the new kind of infrastructure, the switch from fossil fuels can be done in time and whether it will need, you know, whether the current technology that's largely based on fossil fuels is still going to be needed to build this infrastructure. These are also big issues, but you've been writing about it. And I'd like to get your ideas about first what is being debated, and secondly, how feasible it is, and maybe perhaps you know why it has to be done. Yeah, so what's being debated right now is 
the Green New Deal, which has meant a lot of things. And a few weeks ago, we saw Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ed Markey really try to name some basic principles by which this will be implemented. And so, in short, this is an economy-wide mobilization to get the U.S. economy to net zero emissions by 2030, which is a hugely, hugely ambitious goal. And as part of that, to fix some of the other problems in our economy, which I, I would argue those two things have to go together and that, you know, we can't just sort of decarbonize the economy in a vacuum, that that involves, you know, larger structural changes, which we need to support people through both, you know, on a sort of moral level that people shouldn't be screwed over by the transition away from fossil fuels, but also on a political level in that people are not going to like this very much if they don't see any improvement in their quality of life. You know, I was encouraged by the New York Times piece in part because it's actually treating this idea very seriously and asking, is this possible? And I think the answer is yes, maybe along a slightly different timeline, but they're not, you know, the thing that frustrated me about that article is that they do interview sort of experts and get their opinions on what's technologically and feasibly possible. But one thing that always gets left out of this conversation is that we're not talking about what the quote unquote trade-offs are from today uh, versus, you know, in the future that, you know, we have a depression essentially hurtling toward us. Uh, there are economists who have estimated that climate impacts if left unchecked will create, you know, hundreds of trillions of dollars of economic damages and essentially crater the global economy by, you know, as soon as the end of the century. And so I think lightly brought up in the piece, but really I think it's so central to the conversation is to say, look, you know, we do have to spend a lot of money Today, not, you know, drastically more than we spend on things like wars, for instance. One of the complaints always about this is, well, where are we going to get the trillions without even imagining that, of course, we already spend those trillions on defense? And so I guess, you know, in your answer, you could sort of say, too, like, how hard would that be to shift that money, say, from defense and, you know, once Medicare for all (laughs) from those bean counters and insurance jobs into this sort of green economy? Right. I mean, it's not on a technical level. It's not actually that hard. I think the the issue is political because. You know, the only time we actually ask questions about how to pay for things uh, is when there are things that make people's lives better. We never ask the question of how do we pay for it when we go to war, when we, you know, hand out $2 trillion in tax cuts to the wealthy. That <laughs> never comes up and there's never a, a conversation about, you know, which specific wealthy people do we need to tax in order to make this happen. So, you know, the money is certainly there. There's, there's no shortage of resources that the U.S. has available to it. To make this transition happen. And I think the question is political. And I think this, you know, comes back to the, the sort of question we were talking about earlier about what challenges are facing Democrats and specifically progressive Democrats right now to really break down this idea that we have this sort of scarcity of resources and that the biggest intergenerational challenge facing the U.S. economy is the deficit really had a stranglehold on the politics for a very long time on both sides of the aisle. And so I think, you know, it's not hard to spend that money. It's just hard to convince people that, that we, we can. But I think, you know, we're, we're kind of starting to win that argument, I hope. Do you think, Kate Aronoff, that just, you know, having Bernie Sanders had his, you know, his run in 2016 changed a lot of that conversation? And it wasn't just Bernie, but I would say that, you know, 
occupy and the aftermath of the crisis of 2007-8 that saw people all over the world take to occupying squares and streets and demanding, you know, a world in which they too have a future. And the immediate response to that was to ignore them. And that was kind of shocking for those of us who thought that street heat would force politicians to change everywhere. But we see later on that it, you know, moved into the political sphere. And you got new parties challenging and we got Bernie Sanders here and Corbyn and Britain and Elsewhere, the same kind of challenge, and yet now we're seeing, as you say, you know, the battle between the existing so-called liberal forces and those to the left. And I wondered if we could, you know, kind of wrap it up and talk about how you see a Bernie Sanders candidacy versus some of the others in the race so far with respect to getting what needs to be done in time. Yeah, I mean, what really excites me about Bernie and about, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and this sort of wave of some of the new, some of the not so new progressive and left-leaning politicians is that it's not just them selling themselves and their ideas, right? Both Bernie and Ocasio-Cortez ran very self-consciously as movement candidates, as people who did not see politics as about themselves, who really have a sort of different theory of how power works from other, other contenders in the 2020 race and certainly I would say most of the people in Washington and that they, you know, see power as coming from the bottom up. And that, you know, if they can get tens of thousands of people to knock doors, if they can be in collaboration and conversation with social movements, that is, you know, a way to beat out basically the power of big money, which is so trenched in, in Washington especially. That's really what gives me hope because I don't think it's really helpful to trust any one person, particularly not in an office that has brought as the presidency to bring about the sorts of changes we need, certainly when it comes to climate change, which is the biggest issue facing us right now, I would say. But it's just a different way of understanding how power works that is, is really sort of at the core of Bernie's politics, which even if, you know, all of the candidates who end up making it into the Iowa caucuses or, you know, whatever primary end up sharing policy opinions, I don't think that will change. I don't think that, you know, we'll see Cory Booker, for instance, like suddenly become a real movement candidate. I don't think that's his brand of politics. And so... I'm going to ask you just one then. This is all excellent, Kate Aronoff, and I'm really grateful that, you know, we've had the time to talk about it. But, you know, given what you just said, that it's not personality driven, but it's movement politics that have allowed Bernie Sanders' run to be so spectacular in the last time and so promising this time in Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and that whole new cohort to come to power. So given that, you know, and and... This might be too large of a question, but you see on the left, you know, great support, but then also some discussion about, oh, no, because, you know, the Democratic Party is a swamp and these politics will get lost inside of it. So do you see how do you see, you know, or or maybe ask the question, where do you see where the forces of the left should put their energy in this next period as we're in a presidential campaign? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I think it has to be both. I mean, I think we have too many examples from history and from U.S. history of (laughs) folks from the left investing a lot of faith in the Democratic Party to deliver the kinds of change that we need. That doesn't work, you know. And we also have examples from U.S. history that are, you know, maybe just as numerous. People thinking we can do it all from the outside and that, you know, social movements alone by sheer force of will will 
create the sort of big structural changes that are required to deal with the crises of today. And so I think it's it feels really like American. It feels like something that is maybe not the case in like, you know, Europe, for instance, that like there is a more sort of fluid relationship between movements and parties, maybe because, you know, they have parliamentary democracies, which we don't. But I think it really has to be both. We need to both, you know, elect folks into office who we can push and support to create the kinds of changes that are so desperately needed. And you need to have movements outside of office to push them to do the right thing because, you know, they, I don't think we should trust any politician, <laughs> frankly. Maybe that's, you know, because I'm elective. But I, I think it, you know, a lot of sense to not put, put all of our eggs in one basket. Kate Aronoff, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Kate Aronoff's articles can be found in The Intercept, in Jacobin, The Guardian, in These Times, Nation, as I said earlier, in all the good places. She's a fellow at the Type Media Center. And joining us today after writing these great pieces on Bernie's candidacy in The Guardian and on the Green New Deal in both Jacobin and The Intercept. Kate Aronoff. Thanks so much for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.